The Slate Political Gab Fest is sponsored by CVS Health, working to save thousands of lives one pill at a time with industry-leading programs that help people stay on their medication as prescribed. Visit cvshealth.com to learn more. CVS Health, where health is everything. And by SAP. SAP HANA helps the world's best companies get the answers they need to become more agile, develop new streams of revenue, predict the future, and reimagine the way they do business. Run SAP and run simple. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for September... 4th, 2015, the Let's Get All Smug About That Kentucky Clerk edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson is with me from CBS's Face the Nation. Hello, John. Hello, David. And uh, via electronic methods from her home in New Haven is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hi, Emily. Hello. We're a little challenged by those electronic methods today. We'll see how it goes. Uh, especially you, when you turn well, Especially head. when you get off mic. Turn, get on mic. You have uh, no idea. I can't <laughs> set this up in a way where I can actually talk into the mic and either stand or sit in the comfortable position. It's just a problem. On this week's Gabfest, the Chinese water torture that is the Hillary Clinton email scandal continues. Can it get worse? Oh, yes, it can. Then, the refugees of Europe, what is the world moral obligation to them? What is your moral obligation to them? And then Kim Davis, the ridiculous Kentucky County clerk who is defying the Supreme Court, who was sent to jail today, Thursday, as we're taping. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter and in Slate Plus recipes. You liked the pressure cooker conversation that Emily had a couple of weeks ago. We're going to do more pressure cooking in Slate Plus. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash Plus. Don't forget, those of you who are going to be in San Francisco on September 15th, just two weeks away, less than two weeks away, we're going to have a live show at the Norse Theater. You can still get tickets at slate.com slash politicalsf. It's an uh, 8 o'clock show on, on that Tuesday. It's going to be incredibly fun. We have a great guest to announce, Merlin Mann who is John's guru, will be coming. John, unfortunately, won't be able to say anything without Merlin's permission, but it'll be, it'll be, great, it'll be great to have him there. Know that he's going to talk to us about all kinds of uh, cool things. He's a very, very interesting man, also named man. So get tickets at politicalsf, slate.com slash politicalsf. Also, just want to log roll again for the Double X GabFest, uh, which I never gave the URL for last week. It is at... Willie Mammoth Theater here in D.C. on September 21st. Hannah Rosen, that is my wife, but that is not her number one quality. She's also just awesome. And Noreen That Malone. might be like number six, actually. Yes, and June Thomas. I don't think, yes, I don't think if, if Hannah were listing, you know, if she were asked to list things, she would put wife of David Plotz anywhere in the top ten. Well, what's the no, list? No, she would put it in the top Because what 10. if it was like a list of things that annoy me, then it could be, or they could be list of things that are self-definition. awesome. Self-definition. I don't think her yeah. self-definition. I think she would, not wife of, I think she would say in a member of a family. I don't think it would, she would define herself as my wife. She would say married to. Married to. Well, we, we should just ask her, I suppose. <laughs> yes, yes, let's speak on well, her you behalf. Well, you can ask her at September 21st uh, at the Woolly Mammoth Theater at the Double X Gap Fest, slate.com slash DC Double X, D-C-D-O-U-B-L-E-X. The relentless Clinton email scandal, now in its 37th year, burbled up again this week. A huge new batch of emails was released. Data suggests 
about a quarter of the emails that she had on her private server have now been reviewed and released, which means we still have months and months and months and months of this to go. I read that all of them won't be out until January. Each release prompts another small death inside the Democratic Party. There was also news this week that a former Clinton aide is going to take the Fifth Amendment rather than testify about installing Clinton's email server. A top Clinton aide, Cheryl Mills, was dragged before the House. There was complaints about the classification of her emails. John, what is going on here? Will it ever end? And what does Hillary Clinton need to do to stop it? I don't know that it'll end. The campaign seems to think that it'll end in October when she, Hillary Clinton, finally testifies. They think that it's a good image for them to have her and the partisan questioners who will, who they think will go overboard, and that'll be captured on TV, and it will kind of encapsulate the whole madness, which is that you know it'll come across as a kind of partisan insanity. I think, I think that's incredibly wishful thinking. There's nothing she can do to stop this, I don't think, in part because there are new revelations that are now outside of the purely partisan realm. So you have the FBI doing investigations. She's not a target of the investigation, but it is investigating a whole slew of stuff that never would have happened if she hadn't created this special system. Every time she defends herself, she says, well, other secretaries of state did this. Yes, but it was not their primary method to have all their personal emails go through. She says that it was allowed under the rules. It wasn't really allowed under the rules. She continues to kind of lift up the scab. And, you know, the question is, does it really matter in and of itself? The Des Moines Register poll in Iowa showed that 61% of Democrats said it didn't matter. But you might say, yikes, they don't think the email matters, and yet her numbers are still going down, which is to say something else about her is bugging them. I think there's an alternate explanation, which is she has been bogged down by this, and so much of the coverage has been around these emails and the mishandling of them and the legitimate questions about them and the partisanship part of it, that she is occluded from, uh, if, if a person can be occluded from, but she can't go out and talk about all the great stuff, or she tries to and it doesn't get covered. So Democrats might find her less impressive because so much of the coverage is is consumed with this. The emails themselves may not be agitating people, but the conditions the emails create may be what is contributing to her um, difficulty in the polls. Right. I mean, Emily, to John's point, could you identify a single fact or issue about Hillary Clinton's campaign from the last two months other than these emails? I I couldn't. Oh, come on. She has been figuring out how to deal with Black Lives Matter. There was the video that surfaced with her from a couple weeks ago. She's been talking about inequality. She's been talking about the criminal justice system. She went after Jeb Bush and Donald Trump by name this week and has been aggressive. I think you're right, though, that it's like a fog or, you know, a summer haze that's been hanging over her. And it makes it harder to see the other things. They feel like they're not breaking through in the same way. That said, I will have to say that the specifics of these emails, (laughs) what I've learned about her is that she likes Parks and Rec and The Good Wife, but can't figure out how to Google those shows to find out when they air. Can we focus in on this metaphor question? So, Emily, you used fog, haze. Fog and haze lift, they clear, and they're followed by a bright, clear day. I would have used... One hopes. My metaphor to myself... Unless you live in Scotland. Right. Or Seattle. My metaphor to myself was gangrene, which is that this is a poison which Ooh. is working its way through the system. It's spreading inexorably further and further up. 
Is which, it, it doesn't end well. Doesn't is end well. That before or after the era of antibiotics? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's even, a good I question. Even, can antibiotics take care of gangrene? I thought once you yeah. got something got gangrenous, I thought it was basically that's you because you, you're oh, constantly trying not to let huh. gangrene set in. That, we're going to talk about that's that on our really other podcast. Huh. Antibiotics Weekly. But I, and just to add one more <laughs> metaphor to the mix here, uh, California Governor Jerry Brown said that it was a dark energy that follows her around like, I think he said like a vampire. Um, <laughs> so when you're in a fix that causes people to search for ever more clever um, metaphors, then that's probably... Well, you, John, you, you can be the jurist here. Do you think it's more fog or more... more uh, gangrene, gangrene or vampire. Or, Choose or vampire. image. Yeah. I think it's closer. And is there a continuum where fog is on one end? And and is it a vampire or a gangrene? Gangrene seems to be at the furthest end of the continuum. I feel like vampires have gotten. They uh, vanish at dawn, right? That's true. And if you have garlic, you can dispel them. Garlic does not do the same thing with gangrene. I Whereas think, if you're right about gangrene, it's the worst. Yeah. Well, and then the question is, is it possible to have like. Can, can you have, like, living gangrene, which is to say, can you have it and then live on even though you'd be in a kind of well, yeah, low-grade fever Yeah, but situation? you could remove, I mean, like, ultimately, you can, you know, you'll take off a leg or something. And yeah, then... I think that might be, because what, a leg will go, which is to say that the body will be not what it once was and not be able to come back to what it once was. But that doesn't mean the body will die, which is to say the candidacy may not die. The candidacy could go on and she could be nominated and she could then become president of the United States. But it will be in a diminished capacity. And, and also the dimin- diminution may not be, it may be a finger, right? Or a fingertip. Say it blows over, there will always be some group for whom this is the latest example of kind of her lack of honesty or the troubles that are always swirling around the Clinton family. But in that group, you have a lot that are just partisans and they're sort of predisposed to having that view. Those who are not partisans and who come to this view after watching her behavior with the emails may decide, eh, you know, that's a regrettable part of her character, but it is not the part of her character that I'm going to base my vote on. And that's a really interesting thing about the question of honesty and trustworthiness. It probably is true that people are going to put other things above honesty and trustworthiness. So so they could think somebody would be a good leader, even if they don't think they're terribly honest and trustworthy. Could we address the issue of classified, the system for classifying documents? Because there is a way in which, I mean, look, we don't have all of her emails. It is possible there will be a smoking gun in there that will make us think, ah, this is what all the fuss is about. And it's also true that they redacted a few over, a little over 60 emails. So... You know, if you're really a conspiracy theorist, you think that she said very sensitive or very evil things in the redactions. But I doubt that. And I feel like this is an incredibly expensive, drawn out, wounding fight that is essentially all about how over classified and overly secretive the government has become. And it's really hard to see why these what? emails were classified after they were sent. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let me deal with this And why bit. we I, should care. We, we certainly have an overclassification problem in the United States. There's no doubt about that. And the, the, the sort of retroactive classification of all sorts of information in these emails reveals that. But Emily, she made an unbelievably stupid decision to have this totally. email and to conflate her personal email and her professional email. There's also 32,000 deleted private emails that had... Who knows what in it? 
for all we know, it, it had it had plans for our latest super nuclear weapon that she was emailing to her friends, oh. and she calls that personal. Unlikely, but it's possible. Well, we just don't know. Right. We also don't know if she was getting emails there that were influencing her in her public role based on donations and requests that were being made of the Clinton Foundation. I throw that, that out there. That seems not because far more plausible to yeah. me. Well, fact, right. Probable. Which is to say, well, <laughs> it, there is no evidence of that, but of course there can't be evidence because the evidence has been destroyed. So... Um, uh, but I actually I'm just going I, I have some both sympathy and irritation with Hillary Clinton at the moment because I'm kind of going through the same thing at my office because I have to I'm moving off of all my my personal Gmail account to my Atlas Obscura account and trying to do you my are, business. That sounds confusing. And but do my do my business on that. It is burdensome, but it's because as has been pointed out to me by our lawyers and by other people, like when the time comes for investors to look at Atlas Obscura or to 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 make sure that like Atlas Obscura owns the intellectual property it owns, it's going to be a little bit confusing if if half of Atlas Obscura's emails are being done in David Plotz's personal account. So they ought to be, you know, when I'm do, making decisions or sending information to investors, it ought to be coming from an Atlas Obscura account. That seems to me like a pretty obvious decision and pretty pretty simple, clear decision. And for her not to have made that decision, for her people not to have made that decision is such an incredible breach of competence that the classification question, which is important, Emily, seems to me to pale next to the stupidity of the decision. Right. I mean, the only thing you can say in defense of her decision to have her own email, which is, I guess, separate from her own server, right? Because, I mean, she could if she had been sending out information that was classified even over her .gov email, that would still be a breach. Right. But we have her personal email going over her personal server. Seems nuts. I'm not really going to defend it. If you're Hillary Clinton and you know that everything you do is going to be held up to scrutiny, it just seems crazy. I, I guess the only thing I will say is that I think it's quite difficult to be in government and negotiate all the demands of government, these jobs, with these incredibly rigid standards you're supposed to maintain between the personal and the public. And it doesn't surprise me that sometimes people slip up. I mean, I've spend time with sources in the government or like juggling three actual telephones because they're trying to keep everything separate. It just becomes like a huge hassle. Now, look, this is Hillary Clinton. She has assistants who look up when Parks and Rec airs. She could have someone else hold her phones. Um, But I guess I just felt like I should note that. Here's what I would like us to come up with for every candidate and particularly her, which is a plea deal. Which is basically right in the law when you get stuck in a constipated legal process, basically the one side says, screw it. I'll just plea, cop this plea. Right. Here's yeah. what I did. I yeah. plead. And she's yeah. only pled so far to like this wasn't Regret. there. We know Regret. that. Regret. Yes, yes I'm yeah. sorry this hurts your feelings. <laughs> yeah, no, that ain't going to cut it. But what How would, about, look, I screwed up. What would we... I'm sorry. What, what would we... Maybe even leaning a little... Like not buying into the full conspiracy theory that she was sending emails back and forth about how she plotted to kill Vince Foster, but something a little bit short of that, which is that she wanted to go around the the stupid complexity of the government system. She wanted to work with ease between these different spheres, which include the, the Clinton Global Initiative, her other friends and things. She wanted to have Sidney Blumenthal giving her all kinds of advice, even though the White House... That was alone to... adds five years to whatever sentence she gets. So if you stipulate that and just say, OK, that's a, you know, that's a thing we're going to hang on her, the way other candidates will have other things hung on them. And then in the end, because when we pick a president, we pick people with big blemishes. They all have blemishes. 
Do, but but and and I'm and and this is a big but, one. But and, with a plea deal, John, a plea deal requires the criminal, the wrongdoer, to affirmatively say, "I did these things. Yeah. I plead guilty." In the cases you're talking about, do the candidates ever? Did Mitt Romney ever plead guilty to saying no. I was I was really incredibly stupid to say forty seven percent? No, wow, that was dumb. Yeah, no, I mean he barely did in the end. I think after the campaign was over, he did one of those things where he agreed that it was dumb to say it, but didn't cop to the idea that he even had the idea in his heart that it was basically he worded it poorly. I'm just saying we should on their behalf because it then what would happen is you would you would dispense with all the time spent having the conversation we're having, and you would essentially say. When you're making a choice about a president, you're, you, you've got to deal with the fact she's got this proclivity to, to secrecy. That proclivity may be something even worse, which is breaking the law. And that's something you're buying when you get the Hillary Clinton package. You're also getting, you know, these other things. And then with all candidates, just just stipulate that and see how that would whether that would get us to a more fruitful conversation, which would be to say, OK, it's a balance. You know, if you look at the way some successful presidents were incredibly deceitful and that deceit in dealings was like a necessity of the office. Now, I'm not saying that excuses what she did, but I think there's got to be a smarter way to spend all of our energies that doesn't let her off the hook. That's the thing. It's not to say that this isn't important. It's to just sort of say, okay, this is going to be a, a three points against her, and then let's see what the total is for her and right. for every we other candidate. We know she's paranoid. We know she makes up her own rules and acts as if she's above the normal governance of human affairs sometimes. And now is she going to be a good president? And also we know her staff is incapable of stepping outside of their staff roles to tell her she's doing terrible things. Right. Stop she's it. surrounded by yes people or and, something. And that might be such a... The a, worst t- part of all. Right. And then so you may, at the end of this, come up with a the plea or something she has to cop to that's basically disqualifying. Maybe that's it. Or you would say, boy, that's awfully bad. But in the end, when you do the total math... You know, she has a positive number, and then let's relate that to other candidates who are running. Emily, let, let's turn this quickly to the practical questions for her, which is that we can agree, looking back, it's obvious that she made a terrible mistake. It's shocking her staff didn't stop her. It's it's ridiculous she hasn't apologized for it. It's terrible that it's dragging out. Okay, those are all stipulated. It exists. What does she practically do? You know, John wants to make a plea for her, but what does she do? I think she figures out a way either in her testimony before Congress or to the American people, to say she's sorry, make the kind of fulsome acknowledgement that John is suggesting. And then she's got to, like, try to move on. But the problem is that the dribbling out of the emails is going to make it hard for her to do that. But I think she, you know, she thought in that appearance she made last spring, in the one that was unfortunately in front of the painting Guernica, she tried to put it behind her then and didn't work because she seemed super imperious. She seemed like she wasn't taking it seriously enough. And instead of seeming like, look, I'm in a forthright way acknowledging that I did wrong. Now let's try to move on. She was trying to diminish the whole thing and her that's own right. responsibility for it. It's not on her to do that. Like we get to decide that, not her. Well, and here's why my idea of copying a plea deal, even if if we figured out what the plea would be because the perpetrator herself is never going to cop to anything very hard at all, is what you described, Emily, is what is so frustrating and infuriating, which is there's the underlying thing. But then it is all the stratagems and false diversions 
created in the old Washington cliche about it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. It's not exactly what I mean here. What I mean is that we get daily examples of, and that press conference was a perfect example, of shading and shilly-shallying and just not being straight with the facts at hand, but then also just like everything else seems an attempt to kind of divert to something over here, which means that it's uh, you're piling kind of deception upon deception, which means that just the whole enterprise carries with it a kind of just lack of straightforwardness that is unappealing. And so that has a compounding effect, I can imagine. And also it means for people who are thinking, yowza, eight more years of this. I don't know how damaging that is, but it is a way in which that this kind of... um, it, it, it accretes again and again and again another layer of well, more... Well, it's interesting to contrast it to the summer of Donald Trump. I mean, what I'd like to run is the experiment where you have the non-crazy version of Donald Trump, like the politician who actually has some experience in government, has a set of coherent policy proposals, but is a total straight talker. I guess you might argue that John McCain tried this, Chris Christie has had moments in which he acted like this. But most of them are so allergic to this, then they do all the shading and shilly-shallying, and that is so much less appealing than the risk that they refuse to take. But, of course, it's easy for me to say that. I mean, my job's not on the line. I'm just watching. At times, it does feel like all the non-Trump candidates are doing little advertisements for Trump when they talk, because you just hear them, and you you, you go into a kind of... um, like candidate or politician blindness where you hear them start talking and it just becomes, you know, the teacher on on the Peanuts cartoon because you, there's not they're not going to say anything terribly surprising or, or interesting or innovative. Wait, Bush like, actually is that voice. Um, that does seem to me like the message and the moral, the lesson of the summer, and yet they can't learn it. They're too entrenched in their way of doing things to shift ground on this. And I feel like everybody around them will, you know, completely agitate against any such movement. You know, along these lines, something struck me on Thursday that Jeb Bush is being more assertive in the case he's making against Donald Trump, both saying he's a kind of false conservative on the one hand, then also taking him on directly on his comments about his latest comments were that Jeb Bush shouldn't uh, speak Spanish, that he's basically and said he's appealing to the worst in us. And that's been his kind of strongest line against Trump. So, you know, bully, he's standing up for himself. Whoever wins, whatever, it, it'll, the voters will figure that out. But you want at least two combatants, you know, giving it their all. So it seems like Jeb Bush is getting a, a little more blood in his face. But then asked, would you support Trump if he becomes the nominee? And he said, oh, yes, of course, we have to win. It seems to me that that is a part of what we're talking about here, which is, you know what, if you think this guy is appealing to the worst in America, the worst, and he's making cracks that are deeply offensive to you and your wife who comes say from Mexico. No. Say no. Of course I'm not going to support him. Exactly. And just that's so it, so this appearance, it seemed to sort of swallow itself because on the one hand, he's, you know, striding forth inspired afresh and then there is that hesitating foot i can't imagine that jeb bush honestly thinks that donald trump would be a better president than hillary clinton no, of or joe biden or that. even bernie He's sanders a man of the establishment yeah. just closed on this topic hillary's troubles have again increased the heat in the joe biden balloon hot air creation john does it seem like biden is going to come in i don't know he was in miami on wednesday giving a speech and said something like you know if you don't take risks 
you know, you'll never succeed in life or something like that. It seemed very much like a person who was kind of trying to whip himself up into, into taking the leap. Somebody who knows him and has worked with him a lot said that there is a feeling among some around him that it's really nice to have him at the end of his political career take a kind of victory lap, which this speculation about his presidential chances or presidential run amounts to. That this is all these people saying, hey, Joe, we really think you're great and you're wonderful. And then, and then if it doesn't happen, it's been a nice kind of gold watch tour. And so that we should think of his where he is right now both as a possible testing of the waters, maybe he's thinking about running and jumping in, but it's also the kind of thing where he's getting um, lots of adulation and then he might just say no. And I'm not saying he's milking the adulation, although perhaps in a sense he is, but those who are advising him or those who are around him are sort of saying, well, we can let this play out because it accrues to his benefit and his legacy and makes him feel good. All of these things that might look like a man preparing for a run could also just be a man enjoying his last lap. Can you imagine if there's a debate, which is Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, and Hillary Clinton? That is a lot of old people on the stage. And what's his That's name? Larry Lessig. Of... Is Larry Lessig old? No. No, uh, he's not that old. No, and but I... O'Malley's not O'Malley's old. Not but, that old. But, but David's point, old. I guess, was the, oh, the generational. Yeah. There's some old, old people. I wonder if Jeb Bush, if you were asked people how old is Jeb Bush, whether the familiarity with the name would make people age him. So in other words, people Wait, would can say... I guess? I don't actually know. I'm yeah. going to guess. Do you know the answer? Um, I can guess at the answer, but I'm not sure I know it. Can continue? A, I'm going to guess he's 64. I was going to say 63. Tark says he's 62. He's 62. I thought he was actually... How old did you think 65, he was? 65, so... <laughs> so, so we've yes, aged we him. But you know what? But him. nobody would... I bet people would... I mean, yes, we've aged him a little, but I don't think anybody would age him into 70. So... No. So no. I'm, I'm wrong. Or I'm guessing I'm wrong. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by CVS Health, where health is everything. Health, it's a team sport. CVS Health doesn't just fill prescriptions. They partner with doctors, hospitals, and employers to help patients manage their conditions for better outcomes at lower costs. Visit cvshealth.com to learn more. Anyone can get pills into bottles. CVS Health gets them into mouths. Many Americans who have prescriptions fail to stay on them. So they created industry-leading programs to help people take their medications regularly. Visit cvshealth.com to learn more. I'm getting up and stretching. Oh. Emily is now... <laughs> I, this is really hard. That was a I, good, what position was that? I, that was, um, I wasn't looking. That, was, that one called. That Wait, was uh, Dipping Eagle. No, uh, it would have been Half Moon, but it was straight. Half Moon. My leg was straight. Half Moon. No, it wasn't, though. What's the one where your Tiny Dancer. Desperate Porcupine. <laughs> That's about right. Okay. Did you guys see that photo, the photo of the boy? I That yeah, made me yeah. cry. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just was on the train coming home, and the photo of this little boy, three-year-old boy, Ilan Kurdi, who washed up on a beach in Turkey, drowned, as it did his five-year-old brother. They were Syrian Kurdish refugees trying to make their way elsewhere in the world. Um, the world faces the worst refugee crisis since World War II. Half of all Syrians have fled their homes. 11 million have fled their homes. Four million of those have gone over the border. There are millions of other refugees from elsewhere in that chaotic circle of the world. I use the word refugee deliberately. There are many, many millions of people who are, of course, economic migrants, 
people who both legally and illegally cross borders, searching for economic opportunities. And, and migrant can flow into refugees sometimes if the situation at home is bad enough. You you leave and it's not as much a quest for opportunity as, a, as an attempt to flee something. But refugees are pretty clearly are slightly different they are people who have no. Been ex- they're not slightly different. They are legally speaking, they are wholly different. Well, legally speaking, but the, but I guess the shading of when a migrant becomes a refugee—that's a complicated question, right? But it's clear that we have a refugee crisis in the world. That there are people who have fled or have been expelled from their homelands because of war, famine, political persecution, religious persecution. Many millions out of the Middle East, Libya, Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, Iraq, also in other spillover countries, where people who don't have a home anymore who don't have a choice to go back to the place they came from and who are caught in absolutely terrible circumstances. More than half of them are children. I think I may have said that. So for the purpose of this conversation, I don't think we should talk too much about exactly what the crisis is that created these problems. I don't think we're going to solve the Syrian civil war here, but kind of talk about what is our moral obligation to these millions of people and how do we, how do we figure out who to help and who not to help. So there was this strange moment where Iceland said it would take 50 Syrian refugees, and then there was a Facebook campaign, and 10,000 Icelandic people out of a population of 300,000 said, I will take someone into my home. And so Iceland is now considering raising this quota for, for how many people it will take. Would you guys take a Syrian refugee into your home? I mean, it's easy for us to say. We'll all say yes. Right. I feel like at yeah. this moment to say no would be churlish. I want to answer your question about how do we know who to help. So we have a legal, we have a treaty, we have a convention about refugee status that almost 150 countries have signed. It dates from 1951. It draws on the 1948 Declaration of Human Rights. And basically what it says is that if you have a reasonable fear of persecution for the reasons David just laid out, you get to go somewhere else, not forever, but until things calm down, you get to go somewhere else. And it is completely against international law to block people from reaching safety. So what is going on right now in Hungary, where they are literally turning people around at the border and sending them home, Australia, which is sending boats of people away. There's even an allegation that Australia paid a ship captain $30,000 to turn around. That is just purely illegal and so immoral, it's head spinning. Wait, time out, though. I'm not going to defend Australia or Hungary, but Hungary is not sending people back to Syria. It's sending them back to Turkey. Yes, but which it is, is not still... is not the place of it's not sending them back to the war. It's sending them back to yeah, a place of, of suffering, but not the place where the war is. Right. But the problem with what Hungary is doing is that it puts all of the burden of dealing with the chaotic, imminent situation on a less developed country. I mean, Turkey's pretty developed, but still a less developed country that happens to have the misfortune of being located next to Syria. So one way to think about this is to take a step back. I was talking to a law professor at the University of Michigan named, named James Hathaway about this morning, and He was making the argument, and it made sense to me, that you have to think of this in stages. There's the immediate point of entry, right? There's like, where can you get to when you are desperate? And what is supposed to happen to you when you get there? Then there's the question of, okay, once it's clear you have, you're a refugee, you've moved from being an asylum seeker to being recognized as a refugee, where do you go for what international law thinks of as the five to seven years after you've shown up because you don't immediately get to stay forever. What you get is a kind of partial, impermanent, 
time out from your completely dangerous, screwed up country of origin. So there's that phase. And then there's the question of permanent resettlement for the 50% of refugees who really can't go home. Half of them are going to go home. They're going to want to go home and they'll be able to go home, but half of them won't. And what we have right now is a system that doesn't differentiate sufficiently, if at all, between those three phases. And so why is Hungary doing this immoral, illegal thing? Because Hungary is being swamped by thousands of people. And Hungary feels like if it lets them even stay for 24 hours, they will be there forever, much less for five years. And that's the problem. We're not in any systematic international way equitably dividing up the responsibilities for figuring out how to deal with refugees. The point that that the refugees are actually exiting their moment of of gravest danger is when they cross into Turkey or into Jordan, uh, maybe into Lebanon, maybe or into in parts of Africa. Right? Remember that a lot of people in Africa flee places like Eritrea, and then they go to other African less developed. All right? Can we just just for this? Does it make sense if you say the world collectively has to grapple with this Syrian refugee crisis? And and there is also, of course, an African refugee crisis and other Middle Eastern refugee crises. But the world has to grapple with the Syrian refugee crisis. Given what you just said, oughtn't they try to deal with it at the first at the at the closest? Like, why do you have people transiting across Europe just trying to desperately get to Germany? Shouldn't it shouldn't the attempt actually be like, let's give Turkey resources so that we can have this happen closer to where people are going to end up going back to? that's culturally closer to where they ought to be, that in fact, all this migration and transit is a problem in and of itself. And that if that dealing with it closer to the point of origin is probably smarter. Yes, but let's think about what the this and the it is, right? So you decide people's refugee status where they get, in Turkey, in Kenya, wherever it is they first bake it. And you don't have to have some super cumbersome process of spending huge amounts of money and labor deciding these very particularized claims of asylum. You could just have a rule where if somebody's from Syria, we know that there is a civil war in Syria and we want to make sure they're not a terrorist or a criminal. So yes, like we do a background check. But once we figure out you are who you say you are, you're not a terrorist or a criminal and you're from Syria, we just give you group refugees status. This is actually how it used to work in the first half of the 20th century. And there was one international system. We didn't have every country doing this their own way, right. spending their own money. Right. So yeah, you figure that out in Hungary or right. in Turkey. Then you have a separate question of what happens to that person. And that person does not necessarily stay in Turkey or Hungary or the United States because that's where they washed up. Maybe you go to Costa Rica because Costa Rica is filling its quota with a lot of people from Syria. There is an international system that distributes responsibilities more equitably. And also think about it. If you're worried about people gaming the system, you're worried about all those economic migrants who are just using this as an excuse to go from one place to the other. Well, if they know that getting to the United States or Australia is not going to mean that they stay in the United States or Australia for this five to seven year limited period, you have less of a risk that you're going to have people just willy nilly in a kind of manipulative way using this system to move around. Because all you get when you show up is the chance of going into a lottery that all these countries are in. You're not controlling where you're going to end up. And then you have a separate determination for people about where they permanently resettle if that is indeed what needs to happen to them. What if we, um, or should we, in thinking about this, place the point of origin earlier in the timeline, which is to say with international response to what's happening in Syria? 
So in other words, not not the question of what happens when they flee Syria, but a question for the conditions that have existed in Syria that are creating the fleeing. And, and You have an idea about that? That's like no, getting no, no, no. involved in the civil war in well, Syria. Well, but that's the point. So the question is, but if you feel like you have a collective moral obligation once they leave the country, why don't you have a collective moral obligation to fix the things that are creating the conditions that force them out of the country in the first place. I'm not sure what you do to fix the things inside the country. Then you have problems of crossing borders and the sovereignty of the country and the the possibility of warfare, right? It's well, very hard to know how to address Syria's civil war within Syria. Well, Once I think- people flee from Syria, you have a different kind of situation in which you're talking about caregiving and resettlement and give, providing people with opportunity as opposed to firing a lot of guns. Yeah. Well, I guess my point is in the initial view of Assad that there were people who were advocating either firing guns or equipping people to do the firing of the guns. And there was lots of complexity in doing that. But I guess my point is that there would be certain conditions, there were supposed to be certain conditions that would cause us to intervene, at least in some way, when President Obama said that if they used chemical weapons against a lot of the people, not the same people, of course, but the chemical weapons that were used by the Assad regime contributed to the conditions that these people are trying to flee from. And so there was a point at which the president said that would change his thoughts about the underlying regime, which which he has said has to go. So I'm just saying, I mean, put it this way. Use of chemical weapons, we would definitely say in that that would encourage the United States to participate or the world community to participate well, you could in, lose in the military Libyan action. intervention as an example, too. We right. did intervene we did in intervene. Libya for these reasons. But look right. what happened. I mean, we're bad at this. Yeah. Right? But do we not have like a, we're always bad at this. But do we have a more special, I mean, I this might not be the question you're asking, do we have a responsibility to the places where we broke shit, like Libya and Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria? And that the people who've had to flee those countries, we have a special moral responsibility to, much less than we have a responsibility to people from Eritrea or Indonesia. Well, now who, your we has become the United States as opposed to the international community. Well, yes, I suppose that's true. But the, the countries... Yeah, I'm saying yeah. I think we should have an international solution to this. And the United States, sure, the United States could say we're going to take extra people above our quota for permanent resettlement from Iraq and Afghanistan because we owe them. But that would be worked out within this international system. I mean, this is what Merkel, the head of Germany, is calling for, essentially. I mean, she's emerged as this leader in Europe, but she is saying we need to use this in the way that crises sometimes spur innovation we need to use this to get our collective right. act together but it, what's Europe, but what's crazy world. but what's crazy is that in fact because of this sort of atavistic nativist response people are going backwards it's going backwards to a place like rather than having a sort of single decision and a and a world decision it's each country is going to make its own decision that you have these people in Europe now talking about something shocking which is imposing border controls internally within Europe in a way that hasn't existed for decades because Europe has had this European identity that's been trying to forge. But instead, we have these far-right nativist parties that are just like, screw it, we don't want these people coming in. And and so it's terrifying to see the force of Merkel representing, I think you're right, the idealistic, transnational, international model and the actuality of politics in, in Hungary or even in the United States with a Trump in lots of countries where you have this anti-modern, anti-international, each country is on its own kind of philosophy. It's, right, it's pretty, but don't you think awful. part of the reason that those forces have traction right now is that 
we're all looking at these pictures and this footage and feeling overwhelmed. It seems so chaotic and out of control. And if there was an international system, wouldn't it be easier for cooler heads to prevail? Because people would feel like there was an alternative. I mean, I feel like I, you know, it's hard to even know how to think about this. And that makes the nativism and, the, you know, the burning of houses for refugees in Europe seem like I, I think the alternative has not been clear enough. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that's a failure of international leadership. Yeah, that's a very good point. One thing that is really shocking, which I hadn't even thought about until I saw someone tweet this. Where are the Saudis? Where are the UAE? Where are the Gulf states? Where is even Egypt? Why is it the idea that the chaos of the Middle East is a burden that should fall on Europe? exclusively. Right. Well, this is another way in which we need a, a collective system. And in fact, the existing treaties would allow for this. There needs to be some kind of agreement. Like people need to sit down, roll up their sleeves and do some numbers. And, you know, the other thing is that some countries are going to be better at dealing with the immediate crisis. Like one thing about going to a place like Turkey is it's less expensive, presumably, to house refugees there. But then when you start talking about, you know, the semi-permanent five to seven year status and the permanent resettlement, if that is managed, then that might be something that, you know, Europe, Australia, the United States could benefit from. I mean, let's not forget that you take the Syrians, those middle class Syrian refugees, they're, a lot of them are skilled. Those are like valuable people. They're going to assimilate. They just have to have a place to go and they could actually help with the graying populations of some of these other countries in Europe and Australia and us. All right, let's move on. SAP HANA helps the world's best businesses rise above complexity and get answers to questions that most other companies don't even think to ask so they can become more agile, increase capacity, develop new streams of revenue, predict the future instead of just reacting to the present, and totally reimagine the way they do business. It's simple. The answer is SAP HANA. Run SAP, run simple. Visit sap.com slash reimagine to learn more. Kim Davis, the county clerk of Rowan County, Kentucky, has been sent to jail, or judge ordered her sent to jail today, Thursdays we're taping. She's become a national hero to some on the right and a figure of fun and villainy to many other Americans. She has refused to issue marriage licenses to anyone in her county because she opposes, of course, same-sex marriage. She has defied repeated court orders that she issue them all the way up to the Supreme Court. And she has now been held in contempt of court for refusing to issue those licenses. Her defenders say this is her right of conscience her right not to do something which she morally disapproves of. She cannot be fired because she was elected. She can only be impeached or removed by government action of the, of the state government. The state doesn't seem to want to really take much action against her. John, do you have a right of conscience to refuse to do your job as a government official? Yeah, absolutely. And then you have a right to be fired for not doing your job. It's, it seems like the perfect example <laughs> of... Right well, but she's, she's, she can't be fired. She's, a, she's an elected official. Well, hmm... Yeah, and then she the can voters step down. Well, no, no, no. no. Right she doesn't have a. She. I think. I think. Um, no, I don't think. I think she, she has a right to, to refuse. She doesn't have to quit, and the voters should vote her out if that's. But, so she can serve for the next two years. No licenses to be issued in that county. Well, I think she, she has won't to. Do it. Well, I'm just trying to think under the traditional terms of civil disobedience, which is that you disobey the law, and fully accept the consequences of your action. She's going to jail. That's yeah. the well, but a yeah. Fed, so a federal court, it's not the state. So she's an elected official of the federal state of Kentucky. Judge. Yeah. A federal judge has said, well, we, we, that's fine. Our supremacy says 
you have to obey our order and issue our license. Yeah. And then she'll either stay in jail for the remainder of her two terms, two years, or she'll issue licenses under some accommodation that's created to allow her to maintain her faith exemption. And then, or, she steps or she's down impeached, and then they or she steps in. Yeah, it's a, it has a very strong statement to to break the law, you know, out in the open and and make a symbol of breaking the law. It's a part of the American tradition. What are the examples, Emily, of the right of conscience being exercised by government officials in this way that people support? I mean, I sort of feel like conscientious objection is like this because you're refusing to serve as a soldier, and that's a government role that you would play. But what's different here is obviously that she she was already in her government position. It seems to me that the hard part of this case is that, you know, federal and state, but especially federal courts are very aware of their limited abilities to actually make their orders come to pass. I mean, this is like a famous problem from the desegregation era when federal judges were ordering busing or, you know, the Yonkers desegregation case. We were talking about David Simon's TV show on that last week, where you have this moment where a federal judge waves a really big magic wand and tells a bunch of elected officials they have to do something. And if those elected officials choose not to obey, then you have a separation of powers kind of crisis. And that is essentially what's happened here. And this federal judge is relying on his marshals to go put Kim Davis in jail and in that way implement his order. And I mean, I assume that's what's actually going to happen because we have enough of a rule of law that that consequence will actually come to pass. There's something, in my view, quite discomforting about it. I mean, I'm not I'm not sure what I think about this idea that she's going to jail. I think I would have been happier if this had started out as a big fine for her and then jail had come along as like the, you know, okay, you really, really are refusing kind of consequence. It just seems like a very quite a large consequence for her. On the other hand, I really don't think it is okay for an elected official to deny people a constitutional right out of her own religious convictions and to be left in office unmolested and allowed to go forward. In other words, I think that office in Kentucky has to figure out a way to grant marriage licenses. And this seems to be the only way the judge can think of right now for that to happen. Would it be our right? This is a totally separate question. This is is kind of a a moral question rather than a legal question. Would it be our right for her to issue marriage licenses? And when a straight couple comes in, when John and Ann Dickerson come in, she just gives them a huge smile and like makes it super easy. But when a gay couple comes in, she just scowls at them, is totally rude. And can you, can you, is that form of discrimination? Is that an okay form of governmental discrimination? Would that be okay? It would be harder to have it be actionable, but no, I don't think it's okay because she would be motivated by bias or by, you know, what the courts call animus and acting out that prejudice in a way that would have a real effect on how the people before her experienced the granting of a marriage license. So I'm not exactly sure what the cause of action is, but it just seems like, no, that's not okay. What do you guys think of, you know, look, this is a tiny county. Part of the problem is she's the only person in this county that grants marriage licenses. What if you had a bigger office and there was one clerk who didn't want to grant marriage well, licenses to gay couples? she six deputy clerks. Right, that's true. Why isn't she just deputizing someone to do the marriage licenses who doesn't mind? Well, she's in charge, so she must feel like that act of deputizing right. would implicate her. Yeah. So if there were two clerks, 
let's say there were if two equal clerks. If there were two clerks, clerks and one was okay with doing this and one wasn't, would it be okay to have an official formal policy and rule in that office where one person gave out the same-sex couple marriage licenses and the other one the opposite-sex one? I do not think you could have one where one person gave out the same sex. I think you would have one person who gave out all the licenses. But right. that if, she, if that person, the same if that person was sick... The other person that, would have an obligation right. to do it. But if you had it. an official policy that said this is your job and not someone else's job, it would become clear over time. It would, I think the motivation for it matters. And I guess I do think in the end, I sort of am enough of a pragmatist that so it doesn't bother me that much. But I have a feeling that if you really like, I don't know, I'm not sure it's actually legal. You definitely couldn't have a DMV office where you had somebody who didn't serve any black customers, black clients. Well, you definitely you couldn't have that. Yeah, well, so what do we think about the office where there are two clerks and one grants marriage licenses because the other one doesn't believe in interracial marriage? I don't think we'd be okay with that. That would not be okay, right. Right, well, this is kind of the same thing because these people have a constitutional right to their marriage equality. Right, but if one person is just, if if we just decide we're going to divide up the tasks... I mean, if and that, it just so happens, so happens. the person who has a deep religious well. conviction doesn't do that job, that's the problem. But wouldn't you, if you were the boss of that office, be like, okay, we'll just do that. It just saves us a hassle. Let's just I do that. I think you would do and would it that be and you okay? would not want a lot of discussion about why you were doing it and you would hope that nobody noticed. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, really one of the good, good thing, one of the nice things is you, I think the way you have progress in the world is you allow people to let their prejudice seep away rather than try to force them to get rid of it all at once. I think it, like, I think these things change best when, when, people, when people don't feel like they're being forced to do it, but that it just kind of happens naturally. And, and that's a problem with this whole scenario. I mean, the other thing is, is the state attorney general derelict in his duty for not figuring out some way to prosecute this woman? Because if she was found guilty of official misconduct, that would be a way to get her out of office. What about the legislature that is leaving her in place? What about the voters who are leaving her in place? Like, it seems like this one interesting thing about this scenario is that actually a lot of different parts of our democracy are implicated in it. The democratic process doesn't really want to deal with it. The Kentucky legislature, right. the Kentucky governor, the Kentucky AG, who I think is running for a higher office, they don't want to yep. be the people who, who are, I, yeah, I prosecuted this very uh, conscience-driven uh, Christian. Why would they do and, that? You know, who would you want, why would you want to be that person in Kentucky? So one way to think about this scenario it is, is that it is the cost of national court order, same-sex yeah, marriage federal, via court yeah, order. And if, yeah. you can either think like, Yikes. Or you can think, you know what? There are like five or six of these clerks, as far as we know, sprinkled across the country. It's, it's amazing. amazing there it's aren't a- more amazing. of them. Amazing. I'm that's what I yes. that was the point I was gonna make is like it's amazing how little this decision has disrupted or changed or caused furor and that, that the best we can do is some clerk in a county no one has ever heard of in a in a place with a population of three people. Like that's that's the best you got, forces of hate. Right. Nice and she's job. not even publicly saying anything virulent. She's saying, like, this is against my conscience. She's not making, like, you know, really ugly statement that's about gay people. So that's, could be grateful for that. Yeah. All right. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're moonshining in, uh, in Appalachia in Rowan County, Kentucky. You have your moonshine. John Dickerson, what are you going to be chattering about? As long as it's moonshine that it doesn't have any sugar in it. I enjoyed. Why, why is that? Well, because I enjoyed a story in Fast Company oh. by a guy named Michael. I hope I don't. Well, I'm going to butcher his last name. It's Groth Grothhouse Grothhouse. We're going to say. Anyway, it was a one. It's a great story about how he gave up refined sugar for two weeks and how it changed 
the operation of his brain, how he basically spent one week in a foggy haze clumping around feeling like hell and not being able to concentrate. And then once he broke free of the clutches of refined sugar, he started to feel more focused, happier, basically was a new man. I don't believe, you know what, uh, I just so think question, that's hoo-ha. I think that's absolute hot. Show me a scientific huh. study, like, fine. That just seems just completely oh, well, there are, bogus. Well, there are definitely studies that, about the effect of refined sugar. How it's, strong, how it's a stronger addictive properties than cocaine. By the way, did, you know, one thing I didn't know about cocaine is that before it was, I guess, truly illegal, stores in Chicago used to give out little bits of cocaine to kids as they were, like, wandering home from school for free, mm-hmm. and then the kids would get addicted and then, like, buy it from the drugstores. Get- Why oh, isn't that your cocktail chatter? Because that's all I know about it. <laughs> that's the only part of it I know. That's a much it's better cocktail chatter. Uh, well, I figured I would you save it for another week. But anyway, but there are studies about the powers of refined sugar. But what I wonder is, uh, and he only did it for two weeks, so we don't know, whether giving up the sugar, whether all the benefits he found, improved focus, happiness, and all the rest are sustainable. Because there's this other theory that once you... It's like when you work out, you first start doing a certain workout routine, you see massive gains, and then you plateau. I wonder whether the gains from getting off refined sugar are sustainable or not. Somebody could write in about that and or the cocaine-addicted kids. I Uh, love sugar and refined sugar. And so Big Sugar, if you would like a spokesman, if you'd like somebody to endorse your product, I'm here for you. I love sugar. Emily, what's your extremely sweet chatter? I'm trying to absorb this court ruling on Thursday that reversed the suspension of Tom Brady, this four-game suspension from playing football because, of course, of the allegations about Brady's role in deflating footballs during the Patriots season and during the playoffs of, what is that, last year? It seems like it must... Yes. So this court decision, I mean, okay, so in defense of this court decision, they're reviewing the agreement between the NFL and the players union, and they're reviewing an arbitrators and arbitration panels or arbitrators, I forget if there were one or more of them, ruling based on that agreement. So we're like layers in of sort of legal process here. But I just find this kind of amazing this line that Brady has to have his suspension reversed because there is no evidence of a record of past suspensions based purely on obstructing a league investigation. I just feel like that's kind of amazing. Like the NFL concluded that Brady had his cell phone destroyed so that he wouldn't get in trouble, that he probably did participate in some way. And that's not enough for a finding of suspension because, like, it had never happened exactly that way before. And I guess the player's agreement must be super specific about how exactly you're supposed to be warned of the consequences of your alleged misconduct. And it just seems amazing. There isn't some catch-all phrase in there that basically says, like, if you do something super bad, hey, you might get suspended. This is why unions are great. Like, I, I think this is a, you <laughs> okay. should, you should, you should as, a, as a person who believes in the power of unions here, we have a union, one of the very few celebrate. strong, you, yeah, you should celebrate that, that they're standing up strong for worker protections and, and that there isn't that, I mean, I find it terrifying. I have, I don't care. I hate Tom Brady. I hate the Patriots, but I find it kind of alarming that, that you have this commissioner who believes he has essentially fiat power to do whatever he wants to players under any circumstance, even creating new rules like the punishments for the, the players who had domestic violence convictions where they just invent they invent new punishments because they don't Ray want Rice. they don't want it. I, it just 
It just seems other, alarming. On the other hand, cheating should be something that should be encompassed in the general bounds of the discretion of a league when it comes to a sport that has so much money associated also with you. Sir- well, but they didn't punish him for cheating. They were punishing him for, for, for obstructing. No, oh, I know, but I mean, it. it's all a part of the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, I like the idea that this is like a big, strong pro union moment, David. I have to now. I'm going to have to try and reabsorb that. Well, once also, again, are you, you know, a, are it's just you, hard to think. Are of you Tom a big? Brady he's a like he's, he's a working man. man. He is a working man every day. <laughs> that <laughs> guy, his lunchbox yeah. is with his bespoke suits and his like gazillion dollar earning model wife. Okay, yeah. Tom Brady, union poster child. Who knew? It's hard to come home at night to do that. That's right. The struggle like, is real. The struggle is real for the working man. <laughs> Lunch bucket. My chatter is is just a good wishes out to someone who's been very nice to us over the years, and I hope he's not listening because he's probably got preparations to do. But Stephen Colbert has his new show debuting on Tuesday. My assignment September to 8th. you, yeah, my assignment to you, our listeners, is to to watch it. I mean, Stephen is the great comic and satirical and political commentary genius of our time. His show deserves all of our support and. Um, you know, he did something miraculous with the Colbert Report over a decade, and I know he'll do something miraculous with this. And just this is, uh, and I think John and Emily probably joining this, just wishing him great good luck on Tuesday, and and wishing you the chance to watch it. Yeah, what fun yes, we all sure. get but to that have. Was too gushy, huh? He's not the well. He's not the all those things of our time. He he's is one of, one of right. Can we just like say there are a few other people? Uh, Man, okay. wait a t- why is he wait, not why you why, why are you, you raining on our parade? Why why you why are you doing I this? I feel like I don't know, in the spirit <laughs> of just a little like perspective. I actually taking, kinda I think he know. is it's the just too much for I don't me. I don't think I think he's he the, can throw a manhole cover fifty feet. I yeah. saw him I saw him do it once. <laughs> anyway. Okay, you can stand by the David. I huh? would say there are a few other people in that category we might include. Anyway, it's gonna be great. All right. Our intern is Tark Barrett. Our producer is normally Mike Bolo. Today to Sarah Abdurrahman. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. And our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest in iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. We are look forward to seeing you. We are look forward. We do look forward. We are looking forward. <laughs> we, we look we forward. Add. We will have looked forward to seeing you at the North Theater in San Francisco. Get tickets for that. There's still a few remaining. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>